Here at The Regenerative Journey, we know that good health is related to good food and good practices, but understand that sometimes the right food choices are quite hard to put into place. But our good buddy, Cindy O'Meara at the Nutrition Academy is helping people break old habits to create a much healthier lifestyle. So in support of what she's doing, we're offering a $100 discount to all our listeners. Simply enroll in their functional nutrition course and enter the coupon CHARLIE100, that's CHARLIE100, the Nutrition Academy, say goodbye to old food habits and hello to a much healthier, happier life. I then learned how all of us were treating pigs and poultry especially by confining them in massive sheds and making them eat, sleep in their own shit. And I was like, what? We do what to get that that bologna on my sandwich? That was Tammy Jonas and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. Don't forget our spring Intro to Biodynamics workshops are coming up fast. We are at Hanamino in Borowa in New South Wales on the 7th and 8th of October, then travel to Victoria in mid-October, Tasmania in late October, with our last workshop for the year in the beautiful Margaret River in WA during late November. All are welcome, urban gardeners, broadacre farmers, graziers, viticulturists alike. No previous experience required as Hamish and Charlie cover it all. For more details, check out our website www.charliearnett.com.au and follow the events link. G'day, this week's episode is with Tammy Jonas of Joni Farms down in Dalesford in Victoria. I caught up with Tammy some months ago now uh, and I had been to her farm before, I'd met Stuart and her good self and we had a lovely quick tour around the farm. Um, she's such a font of information and so open and honest. Um, we talked about her <clears throat> her, gen- her moving from um, city life to the country, what motivated her, how she met Stuart, her whole regenerative journey as per the episode is supposed to be doing. And we did that with Bill, with, with spades, with bills on, in spades. Uh, here you go, Tammy Jonas. If you don't know much about Tammy, you're going to know a whole lot more about her in a minute. Uh, I hope you enjoy this interview with Tammy Jonas as much as I did on the regenerative journey. Welcome to your Belvedere. Is that right? Is that what, we, is that what you call Shouldn't it? Shouldn't I welcome you to my Belvedere? No, this is the thing I do. I welcome my guests to pretty much their own house. Or their <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I, I, when I do when I introduce them, uh, when I interview them at Hanamino, my house, I have to welcome them. Then that's a proper welcome. But I just like to welcome them to their own little part of the world. Yes, and I'd like to acknowledge that our own little part of the world is on the unceded lands of the Jaja Wurrung and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. So welcome. Well, I am honoured to be here, Tammy. Um, I have been, you've been on my list for some time and then it occurred to me this morning, because I think I sent a text. <laughs> you did. 
<laughs> I was not far away. Oh my god, they're just around the corner because my travel plans changed a bit. Um, and it was five, five or six years ago since I've been here. Lots happened. We've been for a wonderful little tour of uh, pigs, the veggie garden, uh, the greenhouse, a little um, the the farm farm. What do you call the, the, the boys? Room? The, bu- oh, the, the bunny room. Oh, the farm hands villa. Yeah, we've just done, it's it's is a lot of stuff that's happened and pretty much all at the hands of your wonderful partner Stuart. He's an amazing builder. He's he a is. genius. He is. We won't be talking to him today. Maybe I'll talk to him some other time. He's usually off comms. So you can see the people on the video machine on the YouTube thing behind us. So this is called the Belvedere and Stuart built it. And that's because I said to him, build me a shed made entirely of windows. And he said, oh, sure, I'll build you a gazebo. And I'm like, I don't want a gazebo. <laughs> so I looked in my friend the thesaurus and I found <laughs> that a Belvedere is a structure architecturally designed to capture beautiful views. Belvedere. Ah, nice one. That's beautiful why it's the Belvedere. View. Um, <laughs> yeah, we won't be calling it the gazebo, will we? Nope. <laughs> Not in this part of the world. Not... No, we need to also, don't we? So they, they don't have gazebos. No, no here. gazebos here. No. No, how rude. So, Tammy, um, welcome to the show. As the um, the Galahs, um serenaders, can you this, – this show is about the regenerative journeys of my interviewees, of which I know some of yours, um, but I want to share that with our listeners. Before we start at day one um, of your regenerative journey, which starts before – Epiphanies and tension events and turn, you know, turning points. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the day you're born. We can go back that far if you want. I want you to just uh, describe, explain, set the scene for our listeners of where we are, what we're looking at, and why that might be important to you. Of right here. Right here, right now. Yeah. So we are sitting. As Fat Boy Slim said so eloquently <laughs> years ago. Right here, right now. <laughs> We are sitting in my very beautiful Belvedere, as you and I just discussed, Mm -hmm. um, which Stuart built so that we could be enclosed from the elements on this beautiful property while still taking in all of its beauty. And um, those birds aren't going anywhere. No, I'm just seeing it's really windy out there. It is quite windy. We're very protected. Even with the the big open door at the front, Mm -hmm. the prevailing wind comes out of the southwest, and so this is oriented away from that for that reason. I don't need to put tea cosies on on these things. Shouldn't need to. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you for sparing me the need to do that. And you're looking down across um, the western garden beds, which are for a mixture of just growing our own food and uh, for growing a commercial crop of garlic, a very small commercial crop, um, which came from us having a butcher shop on the farm and then having uh, excess bones and trying to figure out what to do with extra bones. So we decided to start making bone char. So Stuart built a retort. And um, after building the retort to paralyze the bones to make the bone char, that led us down the path of finding out more about biofertilizers. And so with waste, whey, molasses, and the cow manure from our cattle, we then add the bone char to activate it. And then that all goes out onto these beautiful beds to grow the garlic. And then we extract a nutrient and feed it to people somewhere else. And then That's the garlic right. led us on the next part of the journey, which is I really like to ferment chili and garlic. But it's very hard to grow chilies in this climate in the Central Highlands. Very frosty. Our growing season super short. So I kept asking for a greenhouse. 
And then we were inspired by um, an article I read about the old fruit walls of Europe where they used to have the walls to the north to keep the fruit trees um, warm enough through winter. And then they glassed them in eventually and they worked out, oh, that kept them even warmer. And then humans being the geniuses that they are, they took the wall away and left them all glass and then started heating them with fossil fuels. Mm, So we kind of destroyed that concept (laughs) a couple hundred years ago. But we let's make it more challenging and more and let's have to heat something. Yeah, Yeah, that's that's right. So we we were really inspired by those fruit walls and the glass over them. And then we were in Beijing and we saw in negative thirty they have concrete um, and then polytunnel, and they actually just before sundown while it's still warm they roll thermal blankets over those polytunnels and they'll hold that heat Mm -hmm. over a freezing cold winter night and they grow food all year up in these polytunnels. So that well that keeping that thermal mass to the south here mm. and extending our growing season through the whole year means we could keep chilies alive, if not fruiting, and then I can get a bigger Charlie harvest. You can try. I don't think so. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so now that's for growing my chilies so I can start fermenting the chilies from growing here rather than from all my friends' greenhouses. Well, that's just all about self-sufficiency and resource recycling, reuse, repurpose. Absolutely, which is fundamental to what we do at John I. Everything here is about um, using materials that other people think are now waste Mm. and repurposing them to continue their lives, either as the same thing or something else. And all of the where we are at the moment, of course, is in the context of these 69 acres. And we've got the very steep volcano to our right. Mount. um, (laughs) Eastern Hill. (laughs) (laughs) We are so going to, I don't know, um, maybe we can have a, why is that little, why did that go red then? Um, Competition, name that wonderful hill. To name that hill. I should find out its name from its original owners. That would be more appropriate, wouldn't it? It would. And it would have a name, I imagine, would it? I think so, but it may not be known anymore because it's not as distinctive as something like Mount Franklin. So, um, (laughs) Yes, it doesn't have the beautiful trees on it. It's volcanic, yeah? It is volcanic, yeah. yeah. There's even a lava tube up there, actually. Yeah. That's cool. Um, You're living on a volcano. Yeah, so I think also what you're doing sitting here looking at all of this, we came wanting to grow more for ourselves as well as to be farmers who sold food to other people. And in the early years of establishing a commercial enterprise, we started out growing a lot of food and then we grew less of our own except for the meat while we were in the big startup phase and our gardens were really hard to keep on top of. And then in the last three years, as we've bedded down our systems, we've been able to return wholeheartedly to the mm. enterprise of living more like peasants who actually are, we're not self-sufficient, but we're community sufficient. You know, yeah. between us and all of our local friends, totally. we are able to provide our own food and we feed, obviously, pork and beef and garlic to others and then increasingly as we grow more things for ourselves we're thinking about where there's a little bit of surplus we might be able to sell a little bit of that like right now my horseradish over to our left Mm. is doing what horseradish does very well and colonizing those entire um, squares in front of the Belvedere Mm. and I'm thinking very soon I'm going to be a horseradish farmer you already are (laughs) just depends who has surplus to sell that's that's right (laughs) a commercial Farmer. Yeah. How tall are those that corn out there? That's yeah. like is that eight, nine foot high? It is. So that's um that's actually an old uh, maize variety that's mm. the a Mexican one for masa for making tortillas. Cool. So I Did you get some from a friend um here in Australia. So are we allowed to do this? 
last year, last year I grew a polenta variety, and this year I'm growing this masa variety. And each year I'm going to alternate to try to get up to two years' supply of my own polenta and my own masa. That's unreal. And tell us about the cereal out there, cereal crop. Yeah, that was my first uh, attempt at growing a grain. So we grew a heritage white wheat that I got from Jason at Turong Farm down in the Mornington Peninsula. And I was so encouraged. I got eight and a half kilos of wheat. How, how, much, how many kilos of wheat did you sow? Uh, less than a kilo, about, about 750 grams. Yeah, cool. Yep. That's so, unreal. Um, it was, it's fiddly to um, thresh and winnow, but it's not hard. And I'm pretty excited about doing uh, six rows this year. And we're going to do a red wheat, a white wheat, and a Mm -hmm. triticale. Unreal. And then you're going to make um, some flour from that? Yes, so I have a mill. I've been milling my own flour already, and we make all our own bread. What's the brand of mill you use, just down a curio? Uh, Is it the one that sounds like a rude word? The one, that Swedish one that everyone has. Um, Starts with F? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I've got one of them. Yeah. Because it's only the one. It's, It's ours is the family one. Yeah, <laughs> I've got the bachelor one. So, so Tammy, let's proceed to um, pull a, not pull apart. That's probably the wrong word. Dig into that wind's picking up too, isn't it? Mm. Rain's on the way. Um, dig into your regenerative journey because it's quite. There's a lot to it, um, and you've just given us a hint of where where you are at this point in time, geographically, but also your philosophy. Let's. I want to take it back when. Maybe there was a time when that wasn't your philosophy or you were, you know, it was, it was embryotic, as it were. Okay, how far back do you want to go? Well, that would be, I mean, I was, I was raised by um, the most delightful conservative rednecks you could ever meet. I adore them. <laughs> I'm so grateful is that, is for the upbringing. conservative redneck? Is that, can you say that? Is that something you put to, like, conservative redneck or conservative in the redneck context of redneck? I mean, they're conservatives. Yes, and the rednecks. Yeah, right. And what what and state, I'm very what, what state was that? Oh, totally. Um, Mum's from Oregon and my dad's from Alabama. Yeah, right. And I was raised in Oregon and California. Yep. And my dad was in the Marines and then he was a, a cop in LA and San Diego. And then they started their own business um, in manufacturing and selling outdoor electrical signs. So I'm a sign maker's daughter. Good for you. And in, um, in California. They did that in California, yeah. yeah. Cool. And then I was born in San Diego and then we, I was in primary school in LA and then uh, high school in Oregon in a very conservative logging town. Wow. And so I grew up um, not questioning the politics I was surrounded by and thinking, I don't, nobody in my family is explicitly racist or anything awful, but they're, you know, they're in a very white bread town and um, fiscally and socially conservative. Yeah. And so when I went off to uni and I was uh, back in San Diego, I was exposed to a whole bunch of leftists, you know, radicals at university. And I at first was just like, you know, what is it with these hippies, right? Mm. But I was secretly kind of attracted to the whole thing. Mm. It seemed kind of appealing. And then I went to a, I went to a talk at, just before the first Gulf War started in 91. And I went to a talk where I heard a number of people in a row talk about all of America's foreign policy in Central America and in the Middle East and how um, our government had contributed to the deaths and starvation of people all over the world. And I'd never heard those stories. I didn't know any of that history of America. That's how kind of sheltered I was. Is that because it just wasn't in the school classroom? That's just not what you talked about? Definitely not. Yeah. Especially not in a conservative town, right? Yeah. Nobody thought or knew those things. Yeah, right. Um, America's number one. 
Yeah, that's the kind of town wrong. I came from. Yeah, cool. And uh, yeah, I heard these people talk, and it just—I couldn't believe I didn't know all these things. And so that set me on a journey to find out more. Did that challenge? Did, did you go? That's an affront to my current worldview or paradigms or did you just go oh my god this is actually you were drawn to it immediately like, was i was drawn a, to it immediately okay so there was no like push back that's crap and then 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 weaned yourself on the idea you were, there was just like a no. this is filling a void or something i think one thing um and it's something Stuart and i share we're, we're intensely curious people mm. so when when i'm presented with new information my immediate response to it is not, um, that can't possibly be true. Oh, God, having said that, I've certainly heard myself say that. That you can't sound, be you true. Sound, you sound like an Aussie yeah. then. Um, like a, well, I've been I, here nearly I, 30 years. I know, I know that. There's, you've still got that accent, which is lovely, and that's, that's but, but I love it when there's a, I like it when people are clearly being Australianised. <laughs> when you say that, it's like. For better um, or for worse. No, 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 for, for better, I reckon. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> I take that back. <laughs> so, what was I saying about the? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Be being being curious though. So yes. I think cool. it's one of the things I credit my um, parents with as well. Like they really encouraged us to have questioning minds and to um, try to make the world better than you found it, even if their way of doing that turned out to be different to mine. And and I think. Yeah, so finding out, oh, there's a whole bunch of things I didn't know, it just set me on the path of, well, then I need to find out more, including whether these things are true, you know. Yeah. And, yeah, that, of course, then you start hanging out with hippies, and the next thing you know, you're eating whole food. Mm. And so my journey into the food space literally comes from the political awakening. Yeah. And I I helped, well, actually, I instigated a, a fast in solidarity with the people of Kuwait and and it's interesting, I don't know why that was my go-to um, protest uh, idea because I was raised on entirely industrial food. It wasn't like our, our family wasn't centred around food. We had very kind of erratic eating habits. And, and yet I just my immediately thought these people are having access to food cut off. That's not fair. Let's fast in solidarity with them to show how wrong that is. And what what year is that? What, what just it's in ninety one. Ninety one. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it's January ninety one when that's happening, and then the war starts. Is that, fir- is that first year of your uni? Uh, no, it's the third year of my uni. Okay. So it wasn't say so you were, you got to uni and like within minutes you were fasting. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't no, that I, quick. No, the awakening was slower, I guess, because yeah. I was being exposed to these friends who'd gone to really good schools in mm. um, all over the country, and they were already feeding me kind of small bits of information about the way the rest of the world was. But it was slow. I was, I was probably still a little bit resistant in, to their little interventions in my life, mm. but it was hearing a bunch of you know, experts detail America's war crimes that made me go, okay, I need to go find out more. And the war started that year, you were saying? Yeah, it started in January and it went for about two and a half months. Yeah. So we organised a sleep-in and we slept on the library steps at my university for that whole two and a half months. And we would have that's Thursday hang, night that's vigils. It's cold, well, not January. I mean, it's San Diego. When oh, okay. it's cold, so you have to put a jumper on with yeah, your shorts. Yeah, not too bad. You know? You're not like in, I don't know, Chicago or somewhere? No, I could wear, I mean, I had to put socks on with my Birkenstocks. Get out of here. Socks and, <laughs> socks and sandies, cool. <laughs> It's a true story, but that's that's very hippie though. Oh, 
That's I was okay. a total hippie. I was so into tie-dye and, um, yeah, I was a total hippie. And that's all. And else. that obviously hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, I'm not used to you not having a hat on. I know. Well, I wear it for butchery and yeah. I wear it when I'm off. No, but you wear, you, wear, you wear a hat often, don't you? I do, but since COVID, I never leave here. Maybe that's more photos of Sony. You've got the hat on. Um, that's you great. have to wear a hat in the dining room. Yeah, the, the little um, army hat. Little army hat. Yeah, mm-hmm. is that is that um, uh, not COVID safe? Crim safe? No, what are they called? <laughs> Prime safe. Prime safe. <laughs> yes, crim safe <laughs> isn't wrong. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. We are required to wear head coverings, even if you're yeah. bald. You have to wear a head covering. Is that right? In case any little not a beard covering. Not a beard. Oh no, beards are fine. Do are you serious? <laughs> Man, I shed like a yeah dog. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot. But I wouldn't have to. It could end up in salami. But if I'm bald, I've got to wear something on something that there is no hair on. Yes. Those that's, are the rules. That, that's sensible. Well, let, well, I want to get back to that one. So that whole thing. Uh, university, curious, you know, on, the, on, the, on a particular journey, on a path as it were. What was next? What, where did that lead you? Because food is clearly a sort of a... We call it a principle, but one of your uh, – it's a cornerstone of what you do, I imagine, in terms yep. of production and the advocacy of good localised food without without spoiling it for everyone. Um, when did that become more of a thing? Was that the university? Was that post-university? What happened? Um, I guess during – well, again, hanging out with hippies, I became a vegetarian because mm. then I read Peter Singer's Animal Liberation. Okay. And I learned – so I'd not only just learned how our government treats um, other countries, I then learned how all of us were treating pigs and poultry especially by confining them in massive sheds and making them eat, sleep in their own shit. And I was like, what? We do what to get that, that bologna on my sandwich? And so my instant reaction, because I didn't know how to avoid it, was to simply become a vegetarian. And uh, that was... That was interesting when I stopped being vegetarian to realize that by opting out of eating meat, I actually got to learn less about it. I had no need to navigate the world of meat. So I just didn't interact with it at all. Of course, then I had to learn that I was being hypocritical about dairy and eggs and try to find free range things. So this became a kind of very personal concern, whereas the um, the politics around the military interventions was a very kind of you know communally minded um, activist. So these are all happening at the same time. I'm having my personal development around food and I'm having my political development around the military. And then I, basically I cracked the shits uh, by the end of third year with the war ended, but did it. And then I couldn't stand what I saw as the hypocrisy of the academy. Everybody who didn't want us marching through their classrooms because they're here to be the doctors of tomorrow. They're going to save us all tomorrow. And I thought, you bastards, what about today? There's like, this is actually real and happening now. Why aren't you doing anything? So I, I tried to quit entirely, but the university... Quit the course. Yeah, I tried to drop out entirely. But a, a counsellor convinced me to just withdraw until mm, I wanted defer. to come back. Yeah, defer. Yeah. Which is very wise. I mean, I was like 20, right? So yeah. what, I wasn't as wise you know? as that guy. Yeah, <laughs> so, cool. yeah. so, I, so I withdrew and I went on a one-way ticket to London. Mm. which is where I met Stuart. And like by the third or fourth day, I met him in a hostel. And he was in this hostel. He was cooking. I could see him through the kitchen. I was actually walking, watching American football 
with some other travellers I'd met and I saw this big flop-topped kind of giant guy in there and he was cooking and I'm like, whoa, he's cooking in a hostel. That's cool. Mm. And I didn't know what nationality he was or anything and then he he comes and he sits down and I was so impressed and we laugh endlessly still about this because he was literally cooking two-minute noodles. He was cooking (laughs) top ramen. (laughs) But, but did he my, turn up with his tune? You went, oh, I'm not so impressed. No, I didn't at all. I was, I still thought it was a terribly resourceful because I was just going out and buying food, yeah. right? You know, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. This guy is, yeah, a, this is guy, a, he's, a, he's a, he's a step above, man. You Remember, were, you were crushing, America, you were crushing right? on him. I was, yeah, cool. I was. We're yeah. celebrating 30 years since that event wow. uh, in July. Wow, that's cool. And um, appropriately going to spend it on on the road doing some agroecology schools up the East Coast and seeing farmers and focusing around food, as always. Eating noodles. Yeah. No. <laughs> Come on, you've got to have like a token packet. Nope. Good. That was a test. Thank you. Good. <laughs> right answer. So crushing on Stuart in the hostel, um, inseparable, what happened then? Yeah, from day one. So yeah. we travelled for four and a half months together in Europe. Yeah. And What was he doing there, apart from eating noodles in a... Uh, he was like every Australian. He'd gone with a, a backpack and a suitcase. He was going to spend a year in London. He was going to look for work. Um, he'd also withdrawn from uni for a year to go do that. And then he met me and we had to drag his suitcase to his auntie and uncle's in Herefordshire and leave it there so that he could actually be a backpacker, not some guy in a, a hostel suitcase, in, in London. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, yeah, we travelled around just exploring and um, goofing off, really. And, and it's funny when we think back because we mostly, like most backpackers when you're that age, mostly hit all the capital cities. And now if we go to Europe, like you can't pay us to spend time in the cities. We're all about, you know, the countryside and mm. landing somewhere in a cabin. Yep. So it's a, it's that youthful rite of passage where the cities seem where the meaning is. And later you find out that actually there's no meaning to be found there. Mm. It's, it's in between. It is. So then he followed me back to America and I went back to my degree. You didn't ask him to come back. He just followed you. Oh, he totally. What are you? What me. are you doing here? Hey, get off this plane! How? Why are you on the same plane? <laughs> kind of like that. Well, we started. Actually, it's interesting because when we left London, um, he said to me, "So, where are you going to go next?" And I was like, "Well, I was thinking of going to Bath. I've heard that you should go and take the waters at Bath." And I didn't really know what that meant, but I was going to do it. And I said, "What are you going to do?" And he goes, "Oh, I might just go along with you." I was like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> we were both very cool about it. And, well, and we yeah. were going to both, we both had planned to hitchhike mm. uh, through the UK. And so for me, he was security as well. And for yeah. him, I was his ride because who was going to pick up a guy who's six foot four? That's right. You know, with a suitcase as yeah. well as a backpack, especially. Yeah. No, no one. <laughs> He's going, you're the ticket out of here, around here. <laughs> yeah. That was mutually yeah. beneficial. That's good. Yep. That's what good partnerships are based on. And then what happened? When well, so I identify that too as that trip to Europe on a one-way ticket mm. was me leaving America. Like I was so fed up with the place and its politics and its um, damage around the world. And then Stuart became my, my ticket to not have to return. So I went back to finish my degree but was very much then on the migratory pattern to Australia. Like I was madly in love with him and I... I didn't really know I was going to settle in Australia right when he first came back to America, but I think it's what I wanted all along. I just wanted, I wanted to not have a reason to go back and live in the States and I'd found it in the love of my life. Mm. And so I finished the degree and I came back here 
uh, to live with him in like first came in ninety two and I settled here in ninety three. Was he was he a vegetarian? No. I was say Sometimes noodle. under duress, but he didn't really yeah. want to be. A lot of guys do that. He did get to a point, I have to say, over the because I was a vegetarian off and on for a decade, mm. and he wouldn't eat meat in our house. Um, and then there's that weird thing though: you eat when you're out, and you have less control over what it is. And as we both got more knowledgeable, he ate less and less. Yeah, right. And then it's, well, we might get to that point where you you stop being. Well, the on-off vegetarian, and you changed your mind on things? Yeah, well, when I came back to eating meat, it was because I'd had two very successful vegetarian pregnancies where I was only borderline anemic. Mm. And then the third one, by the third month with Atticus, um, I was so anemic that nothing would fix it that wasn't meat. And I was actually on my way to work one day in the third month, and I just thought, oh, no, I was at work, and I thought a hamburger would fix this? Like some, I think I just had this image of mm. really bloody red meat. Mm. And I thought, this that's what my body just craved. Right. And I literally went down to the little independent burger shop in Smith Street and ordered a burger. And I think the guy thought I was a lunatic the way I was ordering very tentatively. You know, very, do you have burgers? <laughs> <laughs> do they have meat in them? And he's like, do you want sauce? And I'm like, no. <laughs> do you have hot English mustard? <laughs> so, and I had a burger and I never looked back. So I went back to and eating. it was yummy. It was delicious, mm. and I felt better immediately. So I would have red meat once or twice a week throughout that pregnancy. Yeah. And then I went back to a little bit of fish as well. Uh, it was another couple of years before I had any pork or poultry until I could find some from a farm with a name and a story and mm. and actual animals outside. So it wasn't just the, the fact of eating meat. It was also the where, you know, again, where it was from, how it was produced, more than just I need protein in my animal protein in my body. Yeah, yeah. Even though I was going back to getting the iron in particular is what it needed, um, mm. the bioavailable iron. Um, even though it was about that, it had to be from animals I was comfortable eating. And I knew that cattle and sheep are, by and large, well raised in this country. Yeah. Um, and there's even then there was less feedlotting than there is now. Mm. Um, and so I was, I was prepared to eat it with less information. And I wasn't prepared to eat pork and poultry until I had more information. So you were um, in the city then? When the, when yeah, we were in yeah, Melbourne. In Melbourne, yeah. And your vocation at the time? Well, that particular time I was actually a receptionist. Mm. Uh, while I was pregnant with Atticus, I'd gone back to work uh, for four days a week for us to get some more money in the bank before we had baby number three mm. and went back to a sole-income family. Um, that was I'd, I'd been a high school teacher when I was before Oscar was born, the eldest, and then I was, my career was very much being a stay-at-home mum. I was completely devoted to that career as soon as Oscar was born. And then I was studying part-time and mothering full-time. And I just did that stint of, of reception, actually at the place where Stuart was working. They hired me for six months. Oh, he was already um, working there? He was, yeah, I worked there up until three days before Atticus was born, actually. And when, at what point did you um, think well, you know, maybe I don't want to be doing this in the city, whatever that might have been at the time, you know, even being, not even being, but being a stay-at-home mum, that, imagine, is lim- you know, that limits you to your experiences outside of, oh, man, I've got three kids to look after, you know, and, and Stuart's doing his job. Yeah. What was the impetus to, to upheave your life and go somewhere? And did you know where you wanted to go? 
so I think it started kind of slowly. We we definitely would go away a lot for camping or weekends in the country with friends and or just on our own. We just really loved being out of the city. And over the years that that feeling of dread on the way back into the city, mm. we, we we acknowledged it at some point and went we don't, we don't feel good going home. We feel good going out. We want to reverse that situation. So we started probably in the mid-2000s. We started vaguely looking for properties, but we didn't have any plan. We had very citified jobs and skill sets, and or it seemed. And so we weren't sure how we would move out. We, we talked about being self-sufficient dropouts. Neither of us are particularly good at being dropouts. So... That didn't seem that appealing. Also, how do you even do that? How do you have a mortgage and drop out? Like, mm. so it just didn't seem very realistic. And you know, our, our very young hippie ideas of being a little permaculture property somewhere—it's like sure, but how do you pay for the property? And so we'd go looking and we'd get excited. We'd find and Dalesford was one of the first places we came. So in the mid '90s, we started coming up here for um, naughty weekends, basically, and. We loved this area. It was the most, for me in Victoria, it felt the most like Oregon without being too far mm. from the city. And Even for those who aren't familiar with Dalesford, it's an hour out of Melbourne? Yeah, we're no? just an hour just out of an Melbourne. Hour, yeah. Yeah. So it's actually remarkable that it's so close from the CBD. While still being a properly rural area. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's, it's rolling hills. I mean, it's not the kind of height of the mountains that I grew up with, and obviously the trees are all wrong. But, um, <laughs> all wrong. <laughs> I mean, no, the trees they're, are they're beautiful, but they're yeah, just a very all- strange colour of green <laughs> compared with what I grew up with. Um, so, yeah, we'd been coming up here, and we thought we probably wanted to move up here. We said the first time we came here in 96, we wrote it in the Convent Gallery's guestbook that we would be back to live. Mm. Um, but it took us, you know, 15 years from when we said that till it actually happened. And then we were visiting, um, we were staying at Crookwell, you know, in New South Wales. It's only, half, it's only um, an hour from Burrawa. Yeah, so mm. not actually Crookwell, the... Um, Lagan, Taralga. No, 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 a tiny, tiny, tiny little hamlet that our cousin has or had a property at. Um, mm. Gunning, about Dalton, fifth- Rugby, Rye Park, Tudor's Flat, Bigger. I, I can't remember. They always refer to it as Crookwell, even though the hamlet's got a different name. Um, um, oh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, we near, went up, went up there for New Year's, mm. and oh no, it was before that trip. It was the trip before that. So we went up there for a visit, and we just had the loveliest time helping them in the garden, taking long walks on the hills. And we said, then, now we have to get serious about this property search because neither of us wants to go back to the city. What are we going to do? So then we started looking seriously, but we still didn't have a plan. Mm. And then it's the next year when we've been, we've looked at heaps of properties that we heard Joel Salatin speak in Dalesford. And that was all, and the, where you're looking at properties was still Victoria, still Melbourne, out of Melbourne. Then it was entirely up here, actually. Mm. And then it was after we heard Joel speak, one of his How to Farm, You Can Farm mm. uh, seminars. And by the end of that, I was hitting Stuart on the side of the lane going, we're going to be farmers. That's how we're going to move to mm. the country. Why didn't we think of this? And he's like, because apparently you can't make any money farming. Mm. <laughs> I'm all, but Joel just said you can. <laughs> he just said you can. So, so we're we're going to farm pigs mm. because they're all farmed wrong, mm. and there need to be more free range pigs. So we're going to go help with that. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so, Did he have any farming experience? No, he's no. city born and bred. Yeah, yeah. he's a, as you've seen, he's a very industrious very, very person. He was always a frustrated well. farmer in the city, I reckon. So just on that one, before we actually land on here, the farm. 
I'm interested to, to just quickly dig into the were you were you were you wanting to get away from the city because it was something it was like I'm using the word pain, not necessarily pain, but it was it something you were trying to get away from or something you were trying to get to? Like what was the bigger driver? Just to go city, no, anywhere else is better or that's city, a great okay, question. but country is like or Dalesford is like that's the draw and it just happens I've got to leave the city to get there. I reckon it was probably I wanted to go to the country because I'm from the country mm. and I wanted my horizons back. And I think Stuart wanted to get out of the city. He hated his office job and he really wanted to be able to do projects all mm. the time and be outside all the time. So for him it was also a two, but there was definitely a stronger element of wanting to get away from his urban past um, and, and present. And and for me it was like I understand horizons and pickup trucks. Let's go. Mm. Mm. <laughs> That's what I want to do. I want to not have to put on the right clothes to go down to the shops. Um, yeah. I want to have a bigger garden. I want to, mm. yeah, all of those things. I want my children to be raised where they can run free, you know, pack a, pack a lunch and disappear up the hill for the day. Breathe their biome. Yeah. So tell me, when did you find here? Like what was what was it? Was a was it split off from another farm? Was it as it is? Like what was the? No, this was the size of it. Um, we actually, so we we were looking up here, but we decided Stuart's parents really pressed us to make sure we were choosing the right region, even though for like fifteen years we thought we wanted to live here. So just due diligence, we went and looked at South Gippsland, and we looked in the Otways, and we actually went down to Tassie and mm. did a bit of a, an excursion as well. And we adore Tassie. Like actually, I think we both would have happily chosen something there. But the one extra flight from the US, and also I was doing a lot of travel for the work that I was doing, so the extra flight and also the um, the smaller market, we weren't sure with all of this thing we were starting whether that was going to be a problem. That was to how make long ago? Like 11 years ago 11, when we were okay. doing A, a lot's happened in Tassie in 11 years, isn't it? A lot has. Mm. And we could have been part of that revolution yeah. there and it would have been fine, but I still am happy we didn't go the extra distance from what for me is a trip back to the States to see the family. Um, so yeah, so we settled pretty quickly on this region after doing that bit of due diligence and we actually looked at the place across the road, um, which is 60 acres and we had our hearts set on it and we were mm. lowballing it and it was all because of the beauty of the northerly views from the house that was put there from Brunswick. And other than that, the, <laughs> the place, all 60 acres are in one paddock mm. with bad boundary fences, one leaky dam and basically no topsoil. It's quite open there, isn't it? It's Did very you, yeah. open and windswept. And our road is a seasonal creek. Oh, yeah. And so mm. all of these beautiful volcanic soils, mm. they hit that gully and they just go down. They don't go over there. Yeah. There's just nothing on that um, escarpment sort of there. Yeah. And we came and looked at this house, which has a southerly aspect, and um, the elderly woman who was living here, always had the curtains all closed and there were cypresses everywhere. Mm. And so the place felt very dark and enclosed and wrong aspect. Meanwhile, it had um, multiple paddocks with really good fencing. It had five dams. It had this giant shed. It was actually what we needed. But we, mind you, the hill presents its own challenges, the mm. volcano, because it's so steep. But we just couldn't quite see it until the third visit. We came back on, and also she dropped the price between the second and third visit, so that's that. That sometimes <laughs> so, helps. At, by a lot, because she moved from okay, having we'll Dalesford estate agents to having her from her last farm up at Kyabram, yeah. and they just put a totally different price on it. Yeah. And so we came back that third time, and I think it was a sunnier day too, and we just 
we finally saw what we were looking for and and here it was and it was just actually perfect. You had your imagination hats on that day. And we'd stopped wearing our urban requirement just for a view from the kitchen window. I still had that. That was still a requirement. Mm. But I was understanding the importance of water security and a bit more infrastructure on the farm mm. and good soils. Yeah. Um, and so signed, sealed, delivered, turn up. What well, next? Via via the US, we spent four and a half months. We packed all our stuff in the container that's now our bedroom, mm. left it here for four and a half months and drove from DC to Oregon in a 1977 GMC motorhome and visited a whole bunch of small-scale farms along the way. So you went there first? Yeah, we did. We dropped our stuff here and then went uh-huh. and did our farm tour. So that's quite serious. That's quite a um, – that was quite – Using your foresight to go, okay, in preparation, because I imagine a lot of people would have gone, things. my God, this is, this is our new farm, let's just get here and do stuff, as opposed to, whoa, 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 no, let's just do some research first. That's I can't imagine many people do that. Probably some of them do the research before they buy the property. But, <laughs> <laughs> but they certainly wouldn't have gone to the States and done the No, done, and it was great. Tour, we met know? some amazing farmers over there. But I guess you had a there. anyway, so that sort of yeah. was the impetus. I got to have somewhere. the time with the family. Yeah, totally. and I mean, we drove across... America in a heat wave in a terrarium on wheels. I don't actually necessarily <laughs> recommend <laughs> the way we did that, but we did learn a lot. A and we tan? got to, oh, so much <laughs> when you sleep in a terrarium, you know. Yes. Um, did you go to Joel's farm? We did. Yeah. yeah, we started We started over there. Um, and, I mean, that was amazing because it was everything that he'd said it was. You know, it was a, it was a, good test of the bullshit meter. You know, we got to see the movement of the animals and the diversity of the grasses and it was great. Um, we were only there like for the day, you know, he didn't know us from a bar of soap and so, but he lets anyone come to the farm. So we went and did that. Did you say, hi, we saw you at Dalesford and... A hundred percent, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and like just tugged at his elbow. Hey, yeah, and like got a photo and stuff. <laughs> the kids. That's cool, yeah, that's yeah. great. And got Atticus the um, lunatic farmer t-shirt and a yeah. future lunatic farmer t-shirt. So yeah, cool. Um, and we we visited some other farms, actually just randomly contacted them and said, could we come and see what you're doing? And there was this beautiful farm, Bluebird Farm in North Carolina. Blue. Bluebird Farm. Bluebird Farm. Yeah, and they were a, really, they were a whole diet CSA. And they oh, were cool. like in their early 20s. Mm. And they were working themselves to death. And we thought, you two, we're never going to do a whole diet CSA. And when you say a whole diet CSA, like they're doing as, as much of a, like everything. Sheep. Pigs, pastured poultry, egg for meat and eggs, and a market garden. Yeah, veggies. Um, yeah, so all the veggies. Uh, they had some fruit. They didn't have dairy. You're wrong. But like, it was intense. Wheat? Did they have wheat? Were they growing wheat? No, they were not growing wheat. <laughs> <laughs> no, and look, they're still going, and we're still friends. We visited yeah. them again, like in 2017, and it was really nice to see the development of their enterprise. Are as they well. still running madly around? Or is it, no, is they've got like a, some family members involved in yeah, it now, cool. so it's they've spread their workload a bit more. And no. also, they're just like all of us; they're better at it than when we yeah. saw them. And no, they're not working themselves to death. And we're, yeah, we still talk food politics and farming mm. things online mm. together. Yeah. So did the tour. Um, gathered the information, mm-hmm. I guess the theory in some ways. Some of, yeah. Yeah, well, I guess the principles and the, you know, because there's only so much you can take with you, I guess. Yeah. Arrived back in Australia, excited. Very. Stopped at Bunnings on the way to buy a new wheelbarrow, strapped it to the roof of our Volvo, drove up here 
Yeah. Still, still got that? <laughs> yeah, we've still got it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the green one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep, we do. It's um, turned into an outdoor bar. <laughs> no, it's still going amazingly. <laughs> and yeah, then we landed here. And I mean, for the first year, we were just basically homesteaders. Um, I would not recommend doing it the way we did. We didn't start building all the fences. We, we got pigs and we got cattle in the first year, but we kind of built everything a step behind all the animals instead of a step ahead of them. Because the, in those days we would climb the volcano for the views, not to check the fences. Oh, okay. You know. So the animals turned up. You went, oh, here we go. We've got land. You just do what you need to do. Kind of. I mean, the pigs, obviously, we managed a little bit more than that, but uh, perhaps not as much as... I mean, we should have been building fences out where the pig paddocks are like mm. crazy, and we weren't. So... We did get some fences in, obviously, before we moved. They started right here where we're sitting, actually. Mm. They dug our first veggie garden, which was here where the Belvedere is. And, um, and then it was like, well, they've used up this space. There were five of them. They've used this up. What do we do now? I guess we move them over there. To the next bit. <laughs> hey, but, we but didn't I, have a very good plan. But I guess as we, we were talking, we went for a wander there before. It, until you actually dare I say, experiment or try it or put them there and put a fence up here and see how they go. You never, there's, no cop, there's no textbook, is there? No, and, and actually the, the sort of textbook we did look at, which was meant to be best practice free-range farming in the UK, talks about that hub-and-spoke model, uh, you know, like the wagon wheel. Mm. And we did. that's how we built the original paddocks out there uh, with a central section, and then you would feed from there to the, um, to the wagon wheel spokes. And that's terrible. That's very human-centered design and not very land-centered design mm. because it puts all the impact in the one spot. And being a very wet winter area, that's a disaster for our land. So, Did you try that? That's we, how you started? We, that's how the first paddocks were built. Yeah. And we mm. very quickly saw that that was a bad land management strategy. Mm. And so we, I had tried to convince Stuart to build the fences low enough that we'd be able to step over them easily anywhere. And he was convinced that they would rust out if they were hitting if they were to the ground very quickly. So we didn't build them short enough. And so the next year we had, we folded the top of all of them, went around and folded all the top ring lock down so that you could step over them. Mm. Because we now we feed out all along the um, fences. We don't come in one gate in any paddock. We so that we can spread that nutrient around and spread the pig impact around. And the pigs so, being at sort of nose level, I guess that that wire is it a hot wire. Is yeah, there's a hot wire just yeah. on the inside. That's, right, knitting, that's right, I saw the knitting and the hot wire just on the inside. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it has to be low enough so you can step over the ring lock and totally. the um, hot wire. So, yes, that design was dumb and we did not replicate it in the next two sets of paddocks um, at all. And now we're actually about to get one more road cut to make a circle instead of having just the fork. So mm. you'll be able to do a complete circuit. And that, that will divide the last of the bigger paddocks down to smaller as well. It's interesting that wagon wheel design was based in the UK. The UK is not a dry place. I know, but I think so much of this advice comes for what's good for the humans mm. rather than their landscapes. Yeah. It's just making the workload easier for you. Yeah. And also design at the expense in a way. Like, oh, that's a nice, you know, seems like a neat and tidy and solution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's not actually good no. for the land at all. No. So we, yeah, we don't have that anywhere. And, and now you have to climb over fences to feed everywhere. And the troughs are moved every single day.
Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around the kitchen table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the regenerative journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash the kitchen table. And we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. So experiments, what, what did you learn? What were some of the learnings at that time? Because I imagine your, it was a pretty uphill, you know, learning curve. I mean, it was pretty hectic. Steve, it yeah. was endless learning at that stage, right? I feel mm. like, um, I mean, we learned things like if we always pharaoh our sows in pairs and we learned that if one pharaohs a day or two before the other one, that, that one's piglets will suckle off the one that hasn't pharaohed yet and take all their colostrum. Mm. And so if they... Okay, good one. So we now separate them um, as soon as the first one's due to... Well, just before. They're separated into paddocks next to each other, yeah. the pharaohing paddocks, but they're not in the paddock together they can't anymore. can't cross-pollinate. No, yep. that's right. Good. So things like that, because we had a, a litter where they didn't get the colostrum, they got arthritis and most, most of them died actually. Their joints swelled and they got really sick. Didn't get the good stuff. Nope. So that was a hard, there have been plenty of hard lessons actually. Um, <laughs> lower fences are good. Uh, <laughs> Stuart with your big long legs. Yep. I know. Well, he still builds everything for his height and then everyone else <laughs> struggles. Um, yeah. So I think the learning then was simply to be more proactive, you know, to be ahead of things mm. rather than just reacting Pre- to what we were seeing. Yeah. Yep. That was probably the biggest lesson for us in those first couple of years. And so we got more, yeah, we definitely got more proactive about doing the research in advance, talking to more people in advance and saying, what would you have done here? And we now bring that into our producers' workshops where we say, we're here to help you make new mistakes because we're mm. going to tell you about all of our oh, old ones. Let's yeah. talk about that. So, so that was, you know, your, how long have you been doing them? Like how many years of mistakes have you been making until you went, right, we're going to just... The first the Grow Your Ethics workshop was in the year after we built the boning room. So we were licensed from January 2014. And I think that first one must have been late 2014, I'm guessing. Um, so we'd been doing it only three years, not very long. Mm. And it came about because after we built the boning room and we, because we crowdfunded it and it got a lot of media attention. And so everybody wanted to know, oh, how did you do that? And how should we do that? And it got to where I just couldn't deal with the number of phone calls and visitors coming to just ask for advice. So I said, hey, how about we have everyone come on the same day? Good, yeah. <laughs> and we take them through the story. Yeah. And from the beginning, we were like, this is just our story, but we're here to, we're, we're happy to share it, but we're not experts. We've been here five minutes, mm. you know, and, and then, yeah, I think now I can confidently say, not necessarily that we're experts, but we know a lot more and we still will say, but your land will dictate how you do things and mm. your family structure and what your skill sets like Stuart's and mine are extremely different and very complementary skill sets. Yeah. So other couples will have something different going on for them. So what, just on that one, because I think that's really important and not considered often at all, just seeing your dairy, your milking cow, your jersey, just wondering if she's supposed to be there. Clarabelle. Yeah. She's just she's right where she's a, meant to be. On a mission. She's coming over for a little chat. Um, you know, people when they're married, when they get married, you know, sometimes it can be just luck. I mean, you guys 
you weren't even th- when you go. I guess when you guys got together and got serious about each other, you weren't thinking about farming then. It just so happens that when you got to be farmers, it was like, hey, you're actually really good at doing outside stuff. So what what are your two skill sets? What what makes this 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 work so well? Um, I mean, aside from the brains and brawn thing, obviously, uh, there's no there's. I think the main thing is Stuart's skill set is very technical engineering building. Um, he's a he's a very technical problem solver, mm-hmm. uh, and you've seen that in the buildings around here. He's he's oh. extraordinary, um, and he he's very proactive about finding solutions. So if if he doesn't know how to weld, he watches every YouTube on welding, and now he's a welder. Um, so he's not going into formal institutional learning very often. He learns it from the internet mostly, mm. and books, lots and lots, mostly old books. We both prefer pre-industrial kind of farming books from the 40s and 50s. Um, and then mine is probably more in the, um, I guess, actually, it just struck me. He's like the hard sciences and I'm the life sciences, right? He's the physical sciences. He's the sort of engineering. He the, is, the and I'm the, the life. Like, I'm the gardens and um, mm. I'm the one who deals with the animal nutrition and, like, learns everything about what they need and can see and respond to changes in their well-being. Also, as the butcher, I literally see the results of their diet in the carcasses. Mm. And so I get con- the constant feedback loop from seeing how they are. But yeah, I think that's, and then I'm the one who is the communicator and talks with the public and thinks about um, how, if we're an agroecological farm, what does that mean to the economics of what we're doing as well as the ecology of what we're doing? So um, yeah, I think I hadn't thought about that, but that's really, I've always known we have a complementary skill set, but me being more on the, yeah, the life side mm. and him being more on the built side. It's probably the simplest way to explain the difference. And they are very complementary, aren't they? And and they they're also um, obviously he is his his expertise being the hard science. It has to integrate with and it and the purpose of that is for the the biological the life science completely. You know, so that's the purpose of those constructions. I mean, his structures house all of this beautiful life, right? Totally, you know, totally. Yeah. And if it wasn't for him doing that, then your life science expression wouldn't couldn't happen right i wouldn't i literally wouldn't have shelter yeah you know and and some place to grow um a lot of the well not the gardens but like the greenhouse um Mm. or or the fencing for all of the livestock to move around the, the the constant moving of water like like Stuart working out how to how to move water Hundred meter hill, hill yeah. up the volcano yeah. with a, an eighty year old piston pump mm. and second hand solar panels and a treadmill motor. Yeah, like that's cool. That's he, MacGyver. Yeah, he's a to- he's been called MacGyver a lot. But the, the other the good news also is that he's into it. Like he's not just like oh no, she wants me to build a bloody greenhouse to put those silly tomatoes. You know what I mean? Or maybe <laughs> no. does say that. No, he loves. No, them. that's it. So yeah. there's this, this complementary cooperation. It's not like. Yeah. This is a chore or a task. This is like steps towards a wonderful thing that you are both creating here, which you have. And it doesn't take a second when you get out of the car and look around and go, oh, my God, there's abundance here. There's life. There's, you know, it has ha- it has a sort of a, a like a haphazard, not a haphazard is the wrong word. It, it's got a, an organic is the wrong word too, but it's got that sort of natural feel to it that's not contrived, you know, but it, it but that's... That's nature, though, isn't it? Nature's not contrived. Yeah, it's come from, you know, we've inhabited the space 
and then let the right things spring up or, or put them up where they belong. Mm. We didn't arrive and come up with a plan and put everything in one place immediately. And then, so there's nothing contrived about it. It's like, this is the perfect spot for the Belvedere because it's a commercial facility for us. You know, it's where we run workshops and it um, was a nice big space, but it's far enough from the house to have a sense of um, being separate from our domestic sphere while close enough to be part of this life here. And then, then you realize that you have this beautiful expanse of gardens, which I can see from my bedroom window. So mm. that makes me very happy. I'm surrounded by gardens on both sides of us. And then, of course, the greenhouse, it's perfect to put it there because with its um, concrete wall to the south, it provides a shelter also for this western garden bed um, and then also for the Belvedere. So now there's less wind load on all of this. Mm. Um, and the shiitakes are actually going to, the shiitake logs are going to go around behind where there's no sun behind that shed. Ah, nice one. So we have shiitake logs, but they're kind of living around the rainwater tank at the moment. Have you done permaculture? Is this sort of... We both started as kind of, um, we never did a PDC, but we started as uh, enthusiasts who had the permaculture design manual and um, all of our backyards in Melbourne were very kind of permaculture inspired. We had the herb spiral. We had the got to have a herb PVC truck tractors. Was it a raised herb spiral? Was yeah, it a oh, no, it was raised. You were you were like I went the full uh, thing. Gold medal. Yeah, good for you. I have moved a lot of rocks in my gardening life. <laughs> you had some big rocks up there as well. <laughs> we I've noticed. Um, where to now? Oh, should we talk? Well, so okay, give us a give us, hit us up with what so. I have to just say on that life science thing. By the way, yeah, you've I don't really, want to sell you've, Stuart you've, short either because yeah. actually. He is a tree whisperer. Cool. He's constantly germinating more trees and learning about how they did what different scarification they need or whatever to be able to germinate more and more from it. He gets mostly indigenous species from around here for doing that activity or not necessarily indigenous, but 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 like the oaks that are, yeah, from local stock. Does he, when he gets his oaks from acorns from trees, get the duff, get the mother, the duff from the mother? And collect that at the same time? Yeah, he does. Goes, yeah, cool. He actually went through a stage where he was just getting the acorns and, and um, germinating them in the pots and letting them go for a year and then putting them in and getting a really low no. success rate. And then, that's right, and then he learned that he was much better to put these straight into the ground with, in. with some of the biota that comes with them. Yeah, Totally. I mean, well, yeah, that's a whole other conversation. I'll have that with him one day. Um, big fan of oaks and their... Yeah, look, for me, their place, their um, this landscape is needs to be put into, into intensive care. You know, I have conversations with people sometimes about natives planting natives and you know versus exotics, and you know, it's 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 wrong to be putting exotics in because that's they weren't here, and you know, who are we to sort of impose our whitey exotic sort of um, stuff on the landscape? But I guess you know, it's it's there's no right or wrong about any of this, but. My view is that, um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving the fact that you have both. You know, that I'm, I'm similar. Like we've put, we've put hundreds of thousands of natives in um, in various methods and ways and areas and designs, uh, and I'm a, such a big fan. And, and at the end of the day, a bigger fan of exotics because, the, you know, this land needs to be put in intensive care. This is a, this is a Peter Andrewsism. Yeah. And when something goes into intensive care, it needs every – every medical practice that we can apply, right? This is emergency. This do or die in a way. Yep. Uh, so willows in creeks, oaks in the landscape, lucina, lucent tree, 
Yeah, well, well let's say you know, Tagasasti, I'm not sure if that'll grow down here. But We've yeah. got heaps of Tagasasti. You have, up there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Um, Elm, whatever, is just, there's repair plants. We were talking about that before because they are cycling nutrients. They're wonderful windbreaks. Um, you know, they're not creating and producing phytochemicals and toxins that can, you know, be challenging to the growth of grass and other other plants and you know that's and look if we really took that whole native thing to the nth degree we better we better we better step out of this landscape too exactly with our cows and pigs and sheep it's something that we've thought a lot about and i'm actually working on in my phd too and i take that um the comment that bruce pascoe has made you know white people aren't going anywhere, black people aren't going anywhere, what are we going to do about it? And I take that to all species, you know, not just humans. And um, we are a very mixed kind of species across this continent now. So what are we going to do about it is the question. And I agree with you that intensive care is what's needed. And we've certainly been doing our part to care intensively for this land. And a lot of that is non-Indigenous plants. Um which will better support our non-indigenous animals as well. Yep. Um, who, in my in, in the thesis, I'm calling them, I'm calling the pigs because they're a rare breed. Um, I'm calling them a, a counter hegemonic, uh, um, exotic species. Counter hegemonic. So, counter hegemonic. So hegemonic being like the um, the norms of the the ruling class. Yeah. And often, as when we're not the elite, we often end up supporting those norms. Um, we become complicit in them, even if we don't want to be. And so, I'm saying that these that by choosing uh, rare breeds instead of industrial breeds, we are countering the hegemony of our time, the hegemony hegemony of industrial breeds and seeds. And so everything here that you see is us trying to do our counter-hegemonic work. And yeah. that's why we have masa, not hybrid sweet corn. Mm. You know, that's why um, we have all these heritage breeds uh, of, of plants as well as animals. And um, that's our part of saying, okay, well, we are exotic and all of these things are exotic, but we're not going to be part of the, the colonial, industrial, exotic breeds. We're not mm. going to participate in that anymore. Mm. We're going to choose biodiversity at the genetic and the species levels um, to actually restore these, you know, recuperate these landscapes. Mm. And at the same time, we're starting to do outreach to original owners to understand better how we can decolonize our practices and this land to make it actually available for sovereign practice here. I don't know what that looks like yet, but that's the beginning of a journey we're on. And that's not um, uh, Murray Pryor and his family at Yass, you know, Guru Farm, there you. We know each other online. Yeah, he's he's initiated. I guess is maybe the right word. Um, a an understanding. I'm not sure. Sort of, if 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 it's an agreement, but certainly an understanding, an acknowledgement of the need to share, and and, and even using the word share is kind of weird because it's like, you know, Murray is the he's the custodian. He's the steward. He's legally the owner, as it were, you know, yeah. but, you know, go back so many hundreds of years and how did that even happen? Um, so an acknowledgement that this landscape is, you know, and, and some would argue should be because that is feels like the right thing to do and an appropriate thing to do is, is for that to be um, understood to be shared um, with, you know, Indigenous people who... Who would normally, you know, whatever normal would have been, um, would have been farming essentially, you know, living uh, and producing food in that landscape. So what Murray's done is, um, with a with an elder um, uh, in his area, um, uh, um, Paul House, 
um, an understanding that there will be a you know, part of his land, Murray's farm, that we put aside for for for, for Paul and and his um, his mob mm-hmm. to use to utilize. I heard that Millposts are doing something similar, where they've opened their um, property to doing to being able to do um, like ritual and and celebration. Who, who, who's that? Mil, up at, up near you. Am I calling Millpost? Thing? I don't know. I'm sure it was Mill. I'll put it. I'll put it in the show notes. We'll have. We'll find we'll out take who this that offline. Is. Yeah, Penny Penny Cothy can tell us. Okay, who it was because she she's the one who told me about it. So I think to that point, this is, and thankfully, becoming more of a thing. And we're thinking at Hannah Minow, like, how do we how do we not necessarily you know emulate the same thing? But I mean, you, you know, it may well be the same thing. I don't know. And I, I'm really looking forward to, to meeting Paul. Because we are in the same, you know, same mm-hmm. part of the world, same region. There, um, you know, how can we just be more considerate? How can we, how can we share? How can we collaborate? How can we, you know, what are the mutually beneficial, you know, arrangements, understandings that we can we can establish? Yeah. So that this is this is becoming more of a normal thing, you know. Yeah, I think it's like there's an awakening at the moment. Totally. I feel like there's the start of a movement, and I don't think any of us know what it looks like yet. But but there there are attempts. There's you know there's an opening of a conversation that wasn't there before. And it's through people like Bruce Pascoe, um, who and many others, that you know through what he's written, you know that's 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 powerful stuff. And just the man that he is, you know, he's just a wonderful. And I love the fact that he, as you said, you know, there are white people and there are black people and both are going nowhere, so what are we going to do, you yeah. know? And, he, and there's not... The pragmatism. Totally. It's like, you know what, we can actually make this work. Yeah. You know, what happened in the past is what happened in the past and, you know, there's mending and, and, and mending to be done there, but that doesn't mean we just can't think about the future and making that a, a beautiful and better and a, and a collaborative approach to, you know... Um, Put in the culture, the indigenous yeah, so culture. Yes, somebody else I'd recommend. Um, if you've probably already read him, but Tyson Yonker Porter's Sand Talk. Haven't talked. Haven't haven't read it. Yeah, it is it's on the list. It's the best thing I've read in years and years and years. Okay. Like it's really. Um, I think every single page of my copy is marked up. Yeah. And what colour um, fluoro do you use? And no, I usually use pencil. Pencil. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Rub it down. Um, not always. Sometimes a pen, but black if I do. Mm. Um. But his, yeah, his writing really helped me think about the ways that as a young hippie, I started trying to think in way, of ways being more in tune with nature, but I had no, I had no genealogy of that. I had no family history of it that I knew of. I'm sure it existed because my dad was from poor farmers in the South, so it existed, but we were cut off from it. And so reading his book helped me think about how we can engage more with indigenous ways of knowing and being in the world without appropriating that um, and how to have a, a kind of convergence in our ways of knowing by listening better to other ways of, of knowing but also of listening to land. And it's really struck me that we're at nearly 10 years here at Joe and I and um, it's, now, right. it's now with with 10 years of walking this land that we both feel that we we understand it. It speaks to us in mm. ways that in the early years we couldn't hear it. I mean, I guess you're you're probably more ready now. You know, there, there might be like a there was that honeymoon. There was the ur- urgency. There was the imprinting. 
it's the not imposing, but just like this is, you know, totally understand. And now it's like, okay, you know, we you're ready, you know, we're and that, ready, and that's yeah. that's that's like, I mean, I guess everyone's journey is different, of course, and um, some people never get to that point, and that's you know, that's okay too. And then some people are on point straight away, you know, but again. Again, there's, 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 no, there's really no right or wrong. I'm um, talking about appropriation. Hamish Mackay, our biodynamic educator, it's one of my you know, wonderful mentors, he, he talks about, you know, we, we took, I'm talking about the whiteies, you know, we Anglos, U- Europeans took the land. You know, that's a, that was a physical thing and that was a horrible thing and um, a lot of work to do there. And, and he also, I guess... Warns is probably not the right word, but he he talks about the the stealing of the culture, you know, and it, and and there's and this is what I don't understand, and I'm I'm really I'm, I feel a real need to try and understand it and step into this very tentatively. Is what is you know, as whiteies become more aware and acknowledge and conscious of the history and the opportunity for the future, is that we don't become the ones calling the shots, and we don't you know totally. Yeah. That's actually, I think, the biggest danger. You saw it with the um, Indigenous foods movement back in the 70s in this country that was mostly led by white people wanting to grow Indigenous Commercialize. foods. Commercialise, yeah. And, and again, it, this, the resurgence of it in the last decade has gone exactly down the same path where it's predominantly white people who are growing, starting Indigenous food companies. I think, that, I think I read a stat that it's something like only 2% Indigenous-owned Indigenous foods com- com- companies in this mm country and i think the awareness of that problem is 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 increasing but it has to increase more quickly you know in the global uh stuff that i work in with the um food sovereignty movement there's a lot of advocacy around um free prior and informed consent uh and and that's like so if you want to grow some of the local Murnong from here, you would need to get consent from mm. if you were going to commercialize it and then if you did get the consent you would need to also share the benefits of you commercializing it. And we argue this point with big companies, like with the corporations of the world, because they're always stealing indigenous and traditional mm. knowledges and commercializing them and making bucket loads of money. And they don't share the benefits very well at all, even though there are multiple international treaties that say they have to. Mm. And it was only probably in the more recent years that I fully appreciated how much that needs to apply here at the local level. Um, it's not just corporations. It's you and me as non-Indigenous Australians. We need to actually also be getting consent and mm. then sharing benefits. And we'd be mad not to, wouldn't we? I mean, because it's the Indigenous cultures who, you know, they, the cultivation, the the propagation, the the nurturing and the, you know, that's their culture. So we would be mad not to go, hey, guys, we don't know much about this. We want to we wanna, we, we bring this together, you know, whether it's about asking permission or, you know, that sort of um, not so much formality of it, but, you know, it, it's just it'd be silly just to think we knew it all anyway and go, oh, we well, need just a few of those bloody yams well, and a bit of seed. Well, we're usually it. wrong. That's know? right. That's where we hit the, you know, that's this yeah. just us being dickheads, you know. Yeah, I think that's – so we decided last year that one of the ways, even though we don't grow any Indigenous um, crops commercially uh, here – or animals, um, we decided that a way that we could share the benefits of the fact that we literally hold title when the local mob here can't, mm. um, we started paying the rent. And so we, in our case, we pay it to the pay the rent organization, which is based here in Victoria. And they 
um, an Indigenous board decides how that money will be spent for Indigenous projects. and Locally? Uh, in Victoria specifically okay. in this case, but so other people do, so are paying the rent to their local Aboriginal land councils or corporations. So what is that paying the rent? So, so landholders? So 1% of our income now pays the rent. Yeah, right. And that goes back to this organisation that then... In our case, this so organisation, and they get to decide how it's spent because yeah, it's not our business. Yeah, cool. And there's a, there's a website? Uh, yeah, like it's a literally paytherent.org. Can... Yeah, cool. uh, but they say if you're not in Victoria or if you are but you want to pay the local mob, then go to your local Aboriginal corporation or land council oh, or, or other organisations and ask how can you start paying the rent. Yeah, cool. I haven't even heard of that. Imagine if all of us paid 1% of our income. Mm. Like you would actually start to pay some decent restitution then. And then if that money was being, you know, divided, divvied up into some uh, projects and, I mean, you know, whether it's basic housing or whatever, you know, like some – because, you know, there's lots of, I guess, government funds that have just not been utilised at all well. You know, you wouldn't want that to sort of be – Repeated, but I guess this is a by the very fact that it's been you know it's been put together. Uh, who, whose initiative is it? Who, who is it? The one in Victoria, pay the rent, has come from a bunch of local Indigenous activists. So yeah, people cool. like Gary Foley okay. um, are involved, and and so very um, prominent Indigenous elders mm. are the ones leading that. And then, yeah, I mean, and obviously. There might be disagreements amongst various groups about how it gets spent, but for me what's important is that it's it's not actually up to me at all. The contribution It's entirely up to yep. the Indigenous mob to make up their own minds how they want to spend that money. Yeah. I want to talk um, about what which one, Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance. Let's go there. I know you get banged on the head about that all the time, but I think one of the one of the um, in a good way, but it's, it's it's one of I guess you're known very very much for your advocacy work there. And you mentioned before about your um, your 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 well, I guess I don't know if it's a role or ongoing thing, but your your contribution to the UN um, discussions that are coming up. Can you talk about that? Yes, yeah, so that, that secret? No, no, it's not at all. Um, in fact, I think we shared it on Facebook. Uh, yeah, so, so right now there's a process underway for the, for what's called the post 2020 Global Biodiversity Framework, and that's being led by a UN organization called the Convention on Biological Diversity. That um, that convention, the CBD, has a long history of advocating for biodiversity, um, like 30, 40 years, and only probably in the last 10 has their attention started to turn towards agriculture. Because historically, you know, people think about biodiversity as being outside agriculture. And now the new biodiversity framework is, has a several targets that include mention of agriculture. We think they're not doing a very good job of going far enough about pushing mm. for really good agriculture. They're kind of, the framework is setting targets for less bad agriculture. And we're like, if this is the global biodiversity framework and we are losing biodiversity at such extraordinary rates, you know, we eat something like nine crops are 80% of our diet. No, 66% of the global diet is from nine crops. It's, um, yeah. it's shameful. And, and in Australia, the biodiversity conversation still sits outside of agriculture usually. So they'll talk about increasing biodiversity on your farm of things that have nothing to do with the farm produce but there's no discussion yet of increasing the biodiversity of the crops and the plants. Mm. Um, It's only the the like ancillary biodiversity. And so this framework um, 
was meant to be determined in Kunming in 2020, but of course we couldn't go to Kunming. Mm. So uh, it's been extended and now we're getting towards the pointy end. It's, now it's meant to be in Kunming in October this year, if that's a thing will probably happen on, on online. But um, yeah. um, the meeting on Tuesday, it's not a meeting, it's a stakeholder open webinar. Mm. So because normally when you go to these huge UN fora and you've got like 500 delegates, there will be side events and that will be hosted largely by civil society like us and we might show, or, or private sector as well, and they might show what they care about in terms of what needs to change. And the um, negotiators who are there to negotiate the framework, they'll come along to those to keep gathering information. Those can't happen because mm. we're not meeting in person. And also the informal corridor conversations can't happen. So what they've done as the you know, not perfect solution, but a, you know, something is these stakeholder for us. So what they have are five of us speaking on Tuesday night. Um, well, if you're in Rome, it's the morning, but you know, <laughs> for us, it's 10 to 12, uh, Tuesday night. And, um, there are two experts. One is one of the co-chairs of something called EPES, which is the international panel of biodiversity, uh, in ecosystem ecosystems. Um, and the other one is from UNESCO, and then there are the three um, non-state stakeholders, if you like. And there's me speaking for the smallholders of the world. Cool. There's Esther from the Asian Farmers Association, which is a big farmers and small farmers. And it's a big NGO for small mm. farmers. Yeah. Um, and the third one is Danon, the guy, one of the guys from, you know, the yogurt guys, one of the biggest dairy companies in the world, speaking for the private sector. And oh, how's that going to go? They because that's what they do. They give the private sector the same standing as the people. Um, yeah. So corporations get this incredible voice in these spaces. It's awful. And so my role is to speak to the importance of um, biodiversity in sustainable agricultural and food systems, which I imagine would be, you know, almost directly at loggerheads with the the um, the discussions that Danone would want to be. One what would be would be having because I guess oh, they're, but the last they're, they're few even, years they're not even look thinking about like these pesky small farmers. What do they know? And they're just you know disturbing our corporatized corporatization industrialization of, of yeah. But milk. now they've got language for it. Even CropLife, one of the biggest plant breeding companies in the world, has a whole web page on agroecology, and mm. they talk about how biotechnology fits into that, which it a hundred percent doesn't. So Danon comes in and in our preparatory meeting last week, um, the guy who will be speaking alongside me, who's higher up in Danon, sent uh, his minions, I guess, to gather the information. And one of them spent, she took up most of the talking time um, of our preparatory meeting to ensure that he would be able to speak directly to the other stakeholders and speak whenever he wanted and answer all the questions that he wanted. And um, she was very friendly about it, but it was like, come on. She? And yeah, this was um, somebody speaking for him. Yep. And and then she said, anyway. So I think he didn't he, even attend the preparation. He didn't right? even attend. He just sent note takers, two mm. of them, in fact, mm. for a meeting with 10 people. Um, Danon was one fifth of the, of the participants. And uh, the other thing she said was, but of course, what we want to make clear is that farmers already know that biodiversity is terribly important to them. It's, it's the crux of everything they do. They're very reliant. We need to be very specific about how important biodiversity is. And she just kind of repeated that for about a minute's kind of generalizing. 
And then the chair looked to me and he said, so, and tell me, what, what does IPC, with the International Planning Committee for Food Sovereignty, which APS is a member of, um, what does the IPC, you know, hope to talk about? And I said, I really agree that we should be talking specificity in biodiversity. So I'd like to share some examples from our farm and some of my comrades from Mexico and uh, Guatemala and how we actually support microbial life through things like biofertilizers and bone char and how we then have breed diversity in rare breed livestock and, and indigenous breeds in Guatemala and how we nutrient cycle on farm and how we control value chains here so that that nutrient also isn't lost and then gets returned to the farm. So I'd like to be very specific about how important biodiversity is to us and how also for peasants and indigenous peoples, biodiversity is not separate from us. We're part of it. We're part of the ecosystems Mm. we inhabit. And um, it's not important only for commercial concerns. It's important because nature is inherently important and we're a part of that and we're here to be custodians of that from the land to the air and everything in between. So I'd like to talk about that if that's all right. And they were like, by this point, the, the Denon lady, was her nose was nearly on her screen. <laughs> well, they write a reply. <laughs> yeah. And also biodiversity is not just the plant and animal and microbial, it's the human element, it's bio-life and the diversity of that, and the, which essentially is the number of people involved in an, in an activity or in an industry or in a, you know, agriculture. Because I remember, I imagine Danone, dairy, God knows what else, um, big factories, not many farmers, lots of cows, uh, diversity of, so they're all probably, you know, Frisians. Uh, I'm just generalising, but in terms yep. of they're not looking at diversity of breed. No. They want this much protein, this is the milk fat, um, this goes into a plastic container, and this is the very non-diverse range of products that we actually produce. So, you know, the the they're not talking, I mean, again, they're... <laughs> <laughs> Their definition of biodiversity. They're having a different conversation. They are having, having yes. an absolutely different conversation. And, and to your point about the human people, diversity, you know. it doesn't include people at all. You know, no. their systems are all about employing as few people as possible, so it's Let's cheaper. Let's get some automated Whereas milking systems ours are all about employing on. more. You know, agroecology yeah. values labour over capital mm. explicitly. You know, we keep four people fully employed here on this tiny little farm. Yeah. And agriculture, I mean, half the word is culture. What is culture without the people element in it? Yeah. And and also my Indigenous comrades from around the world will talk about um, the importance of culture and ritual in the mm. maintenance of your care for Mother Nature, mm. you know, and that is completely devoid in, in industrial systems. You know, they, they're not going to talk about nature, nature. and they're certainly what not going to talk about culture or ritual. So that's coming, that's in, that's Tuesday. This won't go out before then, so we're not going to spoil anything for our Danone, friend, Danone, whatever they're called. I don't French. think they're watching me that closely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I don't know. Who's that, per- who's that person over there in the trees? Oh, <laughs> it's Danone. <laughs> Danone is so on the case. Um, I'm just, oh, hang on. What's it saying there? Micro SD card is limited space remaining. Right here. We've got. 15 minutes. Um, let's not get to the – and thank you – don't. <laughs> Can we not get to that bit? Tell me about um, – what are you irate about at the moment? Well, maybe you've already – you might just told us. What are you, what are you irate about? Um, I reckon I'm mostly irate at government. That's not new. 
Um, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> really? But, no. but it's becoming better informed. I'm doing an awful lot of reading about the history of states and governance. I read this incredible book called Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. His book after that is The Art of Not Being Governed and the one after that is Three Cheers to Anarchism. So I'm on that path and mm. I think I've gone from describing myself as a social anarchist to just straight-up anarchist because... I think that states are inherently unable to govern us effectively unless they devolve control to communities. And I don't want the eradication of all states, but I want them to be localized because um, the amount of misspending in government and the um, inability to listen to people's and communities' concerns is extraordinary because of the high levels all our governments work at instead of with the people. But even here locally at my council, and I hope they do listen because I'm quite angry with them at the moment, um, <laughs> of misfunding. Uh, like what I see is, as a misunderstanding of what they could do with this artisanal agriculture project we have here, here in Hepburn and just not listening to farmers saying, you know what we need? We need we've told them for years. We need infrastructure and we need support and collaborations. Mm. We need infrastructure. And we need support for collaborations. And we also need reduced regulatory barriers, regulations that were written for industrial systems that don't apply properly to the scale of operation that we are, where we also have extremely high levels of transparency and traceability in our products. We need something totally different. This this regulatory regime mm. is not fit for purpose. Mm. And I'm really tired of them getting excited about that and then going, oh, it's so hard though. <laughs> we can't do that. Yeah. Has your approach to going the regulators and government changed have you have you changed your approach i think you just really mentioned then from a social anarchist to an anarchist if you, are you are you changing tact and finding that change is more effective you know has if, is there any sort of a it probably changed during our big campaign um AFSA's big campaign in victoria from 2016 to 18 where we won the planning reforms for pasture pig and poultry and we started out by just hammering them for everything they were doing wrong, uh, which got their attention. It was great. We mm. got lots of meetings out of that, but they didn't like us. But then we worked out because they were talking about writing, changing some legislation, we got lawyer, we formed the Legal Defense Fund and we started writing legislation for them. Yeah. So if we try to speak productively with government and they don't listen, I'm still all about the stick. However, if they are listening and actively trying to help, but they just don't have the tool set, then we're here to bring, we bring the tools yeah. and we bring a carrot, carrot. and yeah. we tell, we thank them publicly mm. for their good work mm. of trying to listen. Mm. And I think um, the best, the, the best successes we've had have been literally writing legislation for them. Mm. They love it when you come in with what they need to. And, and actually the helping problem. them. Yep. Get the job done. Do it without them, you know, taking backward steps or you know being bashed. But going, okay, that's actually quite useful. Exactly. And so we find a lot of like legal examples from overseas where yeah. things are being done differently. Small scale abattoirs, for an example, in the UK, they've just passed, uh, just went through a parliamentary inquiry that recommended that for micro abattoirs on farms, rather than classifying them as abattoirs, you classify them under rural industry because you don't see it as a changed land use. It's all in keeping. Yeah. So long as it's not more than a thousand kills a year, it's uh, a rural industry that doesn't need to be treated separately like an industrial abattoir that has bee doubles coming in with thousands yes. of animals. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a clever yeah. bit of legislation, isn't it? So you change the planning The precedent's scheme. been already made. Exactly. Yeah. So I've already taken that one to the Ag Minister in Victoria and she was cool. pretty interested. Make it easy for them. Yeah. Um, what are you excited about? 
<laughs> everything. Come on, sunflowers. Have you seen them? Mm. Um, I'm excited about milking Clarabelle every morning and evening. I'm excited about learning to make cheese. I'm excited that um, the Food Sovereignty Alliance has a wonderful committee and they're all pulling in the same direction and all these smart food sovereignty warriors just getting better at what they do. I'm excited about the next book that we're working on. I'm excited about my PhD. I'm excited that you came today. I'm excited to be here. Yep. And I'm excited that we're having dinner and I'm excited that you're actually, you've given me a bed tonight because I <laughs> totally missed that part in my planning. That My, pla- my travel plans changed and... Um, Darren, I think Darren asked me, uh, Darren Doherty, who I interviewed this morning, sitting in Castlemaine. Now it's Castlemaine, Castle not, Castle not Castlemaine. That's <laughs> he beat that enemy quick smart. And he said, "What are you doing? So, what are you doing tonight? Yeah, you know, what are you doing?" And I went, "Oh, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going over um, to Dalesford, and and then <laughs> then it occurred to me that I had nowhere to stay. So I'm so I'm, I'm happy about that. And I'm so grateful. You're very lucky um, that we just cleaned that bedroom was more pantry than bedroom, and now it's just those beautiful jars that you saw on the shelf. Yeah, it was full of all of our cheeses curing as well." <laughs> I would probably smell worse than those cheeses, don't worry. <laughs> Not that cheese smells bad, but in terms of, you know, you don't need your bacon cheese the whole time, do you? Now, what else have I got here? Um, books. Tell me about books. Are there any sort of go-to books that you have you just go, like... Um, seeing Like a State, I recommend for anyone who wants seeing, to... Seeing Like a State. Okay, yeah. uh, for anyone who's trying to understand um, governance yep. uh, and why states are getting it so wrong. Um, our book that we put out in 2019, Farming Democracy, Radically yes. Transforming the Food System from the Ground Up, yeah. uh, which tells the story of eight farmers mm. um, doing like we do. And you were so transparent in that one. That's, yeah, that, it has, that's all the, yep. has all of the finances of the farms, yep. everything. Yep. And the ups and downs, what people like and don't like. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a very tra- – that was the requirement of the book and everyone came through with the goods. It's so good. Yeah. Um, and you know what, guys, before you go on there, that to me is a great example of this kind of – farming, this time of philosophy and the collaborative approach in, and I'm using the broad term regenerative farming, um, the people involved I've found, and I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, uh, are that kind of people, transparent, totally. collaborative, you know, sharing and just wanting to help, you know. Yeah, and there's, it's... There's that, there's that lack of... You know how we often get called a niche, like we're looking for a niche market? Mm. And what I find is that the people who are in here like me doing this work are trying to make this, you know, the famous COVID words, right? They're trying to make this a new normal, not a niche. Mm. And the new normal is about transparency because that's what's going to give us the radical transformation we need. Mm. Everything about the hidden food system is bad. And everything about the transparent one, if it's bad, you'll be able to tell them and they have to fix it. It won't be bad for long. Yep. We keep just improving. So, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's um, it's exciting time to be alive when you see the changes in people's mindset and attitude and willingness to be open. Um, it's, yeah, I find that wonderful and, and generous of people. More, more books. Agroecology by Peter Rossett and Miguel Altieri, which is just like a very short um, volume that gives you the science, the set of practices and the social movement that is agroecology. So if you're wanting a quick dip and it's available online as a PDF actually, so you don't even have to buy the hard copy. Um, what else would I recommend? I mean, I've read about, Bazillion. What about mentors? Who, who are some um, of your mentors you just want to dip your hat off to? Well, I mean, obviously, Charlie Massey, um, for me, is a major mentor just with his commitment and hard work. Uh, he's just, and, and his generosity. 
Um, Tyson Yankapoto, who I mentioned before, I'm finding has become somebody that I'm staying in contact with since I had a con- conversation with him for one of AFSA's solidarity sessions. So I'm finding him somebody really rich to think with. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then, but for me, it's my mentors are all of my fellow farmers. It's the that's and that's again a pillar of agroecology: farmer to farmer knowledge sharing. It's being able to just talk to whether it's the farmer next door or five k's away or. 5,000 Ks away online or on the phone and just share what's going on with each of us. How did you do that? How did you overcome this? What are you seeing in the paddocks right now? Um, what do you need? What's not working? My mentors are my peers. A lot of power in that. And power may be the wrong word, but, you know, that just getting back to, I guess, back, back to the government regulation and the power they wield or may not, well, you know, the changing sort of balance of that is that top-down approach is just not working, is it? It's not. And again, if you read Agroecology by Peter Rossett and Miguel Altieri, they'll talk about that it needs to be a bottom-up approach. Any of any of the changes that we need, we're trying to see now need to come from all of us. We need to stop this nonsensical reliance on so-called experts who we pay a fortune to, um, for whether it's for inputs or knowledge. We need to stop doing that. We need to rely on ourselves. We need to reskill ourselves. So if you need biofertilizer, learn how to make it. If you need to um, read your landscape, walk it more often, yeah. you know, and sure, pull in experts periodically who do already know something you need to know. I'm all, podcasts are fabulous for that, I find. Um, but don't make that your model of learning and being in the world. Not being prescriptive about that. Yeah. Um, any sort of exciting projects on the go? Well, here, in, here on the farm, of course, we're just finishing the ladder for all of our preserves and the greenhouse for winter. Um, and then we hope to build an abattoir on the farm in the next year or two. Cool. So we've started design work on that, and we've all signed up to get our meat, lic- uh, meat inspector licenses. So we're we're raring to go. I've signed up ten of us here in the region to do our, our licenses. So that means with that license, you can that means you can have you can have your own farm abattoir and inspect for ourselves. Inspect for yourselves, and having ten to do that means that you can just rotate. Totally, and they could inspect for themselves, and we don't even have to be there. So that's so a very fa- exciting. So other, other farmers other can use can it as well. It. That's the idea. Imagine there was a micro abattoir every twenty k's to service the little farmers. Well, there used to be. So I know. So bring it back. So I'm excited about that's that. That's a big step forward, isn't it? And I'm excited about APSA's um, local food economies campaign, which we're just in the um, grinding work of right now, where we're identifying regulatory barriers for every state in Australia. Who's that? The Food Sovereignty Alliance. Oh, yep. Yeah, so yeah, we're. Um, currently mapping those regulatory barriers and then starting to find examples of legislation we could write to give the options to the uh, legislators of how this could look. Make it easy. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, billboard, you've got the opportunity to write something, a question, excuse me, statement, um, phrase, whatever, quote, on a billboard on the Hume Highway, a lot of people driving past, what would you put on it? That's really hard. I mean, you know, my thing for ages has been you are what you eat, so eat ethically, which is kind of cute, but it's not nearly as deep as what I'd say these days. Um, I don't know. It might be don't eat chicken unless its name is Colin. <laughs> okay. That'll do. That'll get them thinking. That will get them thinking. Well, um, Tammy, can I just say with three minutes spare, or probably two now, um, can I? You've got me thinking, and I trust you've got my listeners um, thinking as well. And can I just thank you so much for your time today? 
for the um, wisdom that you're sharing and not just what you're sharing with, with me now and therefore with our listeners, but also, I mean, you don't have to do what you're doing. Like you could sit on your farm and do your thing and you know, be a meat smith and, 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 and have a, you know, a business and have a family and doing all those things. So the fact that you are stepping outside of that, literally, and your your advocacy work in the space of food, you know, with 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 food systems, and just even this, you know, talk about, um, you know, making micro, making other, you know, the micro um, abattoir um, world, you know, opening that up, you know. So I'm, you know, very grateful that you and people like you in the world contributing in such a positive way. So can you thank s- my parents? Can, hey? <laughs> thank my parents for it. Yeah, wonderful. And can you not just don't stop doing that, please? Can you keep doing it? I can't help myself. Can you rest anyway. every now and again a bit? <laughs> Are you getting enough rest? Plenty. Yes. Thanks so much, Charlie. It's Hello, been a pleasure you. to talk with you today. And your Belvedere. It's yes. not a gazebo. Don't anyone think it it's a gazebo? It's definitely not a gazebo. And thank you, Stuart, for building the gazebo. And uh, yeah, Tammy, thank you for your time. And Stuart, thank you for giving me the time with Tammy. Thanks. She, she, I think you were supposed to be milking a cow, were you? I was meant to be milking a cow and finishing preparation <laughs> for a workshop. And he said, didn't complete. He just went, right, no, I'm, I'm up, I'm doing it. <laughs> he did. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. Next week, I'll be interviewing Stuart Austin. Uh, I've known Stuart for some years now, and he's a fantastic regenerative uh, farmer at Ebor in New South Wales. And we had fantastic chats, uh, as we as we all uh, always do. But he's got some really insightful um, stories to tell, and uh, uh, and good yarns about his own regenerative journey, which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Uh, next week, Stuart Austin, the regenerative journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.